Over the week of Wednesday, November 28th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk with Greg Sargent of the Washington Post about his new book, An Uncivil War, which details the many ways that Trump and the GOP are actively working to erode our democracy, engaging in everything from voter suppression and disenfranchisement to working to undermine our institutions like the courts and the media. But he believes the press is held up in part because of the way that sources like The Washington Post cover Trump's lies. Trump is trying to destroy objective truth. He's trying to destroy the legitimate institutional role of the press in our democracy. If we cover each lie and each public statement and attack with an understanding that we need to convey that basic larger truth, I think we'll be okay. Also following the harrowing reports on the crisis of migrant families at the Mexico border in California, including footage of children being tear-gassed, the organization Families Belong Together has called for nationwide rallies called Stop the Tears, and we will be joined by Palmira Figueroa, who is organizing Sunday's event in Seattle. And finally, we will hear from Indivisible Washington 8th Research Team Leader Stephen Wilhelm about this week's calls to action. That's all ahead, so stay with us. My guest Greg Sargent writes the Plumline blog for The Washington Post. Previously, he wrote for New York Magazine, The New York Observer, and Talking Points Memo. And he's the author of the new book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. And he joins us now to discuss it. Greg Sargent, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, what you mean by Thunderdome politics. I'm sure that term jumps out for people. But first, I I want to just generally unpack the thesis of your book here. So in the book, you say that America has been at risk of, quote, democratic backsliding. And uh, you stress that Trump is ultimately more the symptom than the disease here. Uh, This is part of a theory by political scientist Nancy Bermeo. First, tell us what is meant by democratic backsliding. Sure. Well, democratic backsliding is a, is a term that's used in various ways by political scientists. And and so the, the kind of big, bold version of democratic backsliding is, of course, something like a, a coup or, or an overthrow, a violent overthrow by the military of, of a democratically elected leader. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a much more incremental form of backsliding um, in which um, – a political party or politicians erode democracy by essentially capturing um, through partisan capture of the rules of political competition, um, which enables them to manipulate uh, those rules in a way that entrenches their power and produces less democratic outcomes. Yeah. And, and a couple of the terms that you use to describe that in the book, uh, one is uh, executive aggrandizement. Um, and as you said, it's, it's much more gradual. Talk about specifically what is meant by executive aggrandizement. Well, that's, that's the sort of thing where um, an executive might use kind of weirdly sort of quasi-legitimate means to expand his power kind of vis-a-vis other institutions. Uh, an example of that might be, although this isn't really really quantifiable, uh, you know, relentless attacks on the press, which are designed to kind of cow and contain uh, the press's ability to act as a check on the executive or at least a, a mechanism of accountability. Or it could sort of refer to attacks on the judiciary mm-hmm. that might do the same thing. These are really difficult to measure types of phenomena. 
And so as a result, political scientists tend to disagree rather vehemently about how to measure them and what they mean and so forth. But, but generally speaking, what we're talking about is uh, a kind of gradual expansion of power at the expense of, um, I don't know, accountability and a functional check on power, on the power of the executive that ends up producing less and less democratic uh, outcomes over time. Yeah, and I, I think while it's difficult to quantify, um, one can observe these sorts of things happening with the Trump administration pretty much on a regular basis. I know that you and your role at the Washington Post are well aware of this. There's another term that I wanted to get to, which is called strategic harassment uh, and manipulation, which I think is something that the GOP is currently actively engaged in. Talk a little bit more broadly about what strategic harassment and manipulation involve. Well, manipulation would be, you know, something like voter suppression or um, maybe a little more loosely uh, partisan gerrymandering taken to an extreme. This is a type of backsliding that occurs through uh, partisan capture of, of the rules of po- uh, political competition, right? Um, it's it's sort of a strategic effort to further entrench power at the direct expense of the opposition. I mean, that's kind of crucial. Um, in both the, in both voter suppression and extreme gerrymandering, what's happening is uh, one party is is not simply entrenching its own power, but also diminishing the power of of the opposition in a way that I think is fundamentally undemocratic and and really kind of borderline illegitimate. So that's really what's meant by that. Yeah, I, I think the non-technical term is uh, cheating. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so one key question that you ask in the book or that you explore rather in the book is whether or not our country is backsliding. You cite a group of academics who have a project called Brightline Watch. What are some of the metrics by which they measure if a country is backsliding? And this gets into quantification. And then uh, moreover, how does the U.S. rate? Well, so let me first say that there's actually one thing I discovered early on in researching this book is that there's actually a, no consensus on how to measure uh, the health of a democracy. So, you know, political scientists differ even on that point. This, this ends up getting so complicated as a result. But I like, I like Brightline Watch, which is a, a group of academics from Princeton and a couple other colleges that are uh, universities that are escaping me right now. Um, but you can just your your listeners can just Google Brightline Watch, and there's a lot to look at there. A lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. What they do is they 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 do a bunch of different things. One one thing that I find very helpful is that they break down into I I think around 20 different categories, um, ways of saying uh, re- measuring the health of our democracy. For instance, you know our votes they're loose categories, but they they can they they're meaningful. Things like are votes accorded equal weight, are um, is is does the does the system incentivize compromise, is there um, meaningful and robust participation and so forth. And so, what they do is they ask uh, uh, maybe a few hundred political scientists around the country to weigh in on those questions and then kind of aggregate the results and, and reach some conclusions that way. And then, interestingly, they also poll on these similar questions and then uh, compare the public's uh, beliefs on on the health of democracy by these metrics to those of political scientists. And overall, you know, in some areas, 
what they find is that, you know, in some ways, um, our democracy is really functioning quite well. Like, you know, we don't see full-scale fraud or something like that. But when it comes to participation or compromise, uh, the ability to uh, incentive to compromise, they're they're real. They 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 conclude that uh, those are really areas where we're underperforming. Yeah, and you can see why there would be a lack of agreement. And and in fact, in the book, you you cite uh, two opposing views uh, that are explored in two different books. Uh, one is called How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. It uh, says that the U.S. is already showing telltale signs of an impending autocratic takeover. Uh, but then you also cite the book One Nation After Trump by uh, your Washington Post colleague E.J. Dion, along with uh, – Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann, and they assert that while this is a crisis point, uh, that Trump may have inadvertently saved the country by alerting us to the crisis, uh, which has uh, reinvigorated activism and civic engagement. And as somebody who hosts a show for uh, progressive activists, I'd like to think it's the latter. But I'd love to talk about some of the arguments for each that you do offer in the book. Um, So on sort of the negative side, in addition to what we talked about earlier with uh, Trump attacking and trying to weaken our institutions. Um, You talk about how Trump has eroded our norms. This is something that, of course, is extremely hard to quantify uh, because these are not codified. They have almost always been observed by presidents, but they're not laws. Um, And the list of Trump's transgressions here is incredibly long, and most people uh, know what I'm talking about when I say that. But everything from his constant attacks on the media, uh, his attitude that the Justice Department is there to serve him, his constant rallies, uh, his calling himself a nationalist, and just generally degrading the political discourse uh, in this country. Talk about the impact of eroding these norms. Well, I think you actually provided a very good list there. I would add to it, you know, the constant attacks on law enforcement, the declaration that the news media is the enemy of the people. Um, You know, it's a little hard to to judge at this juncture what the long-term impact of all the things that he's done is. But you know, I want to just say something quickly about the difference between the uh, Ziblatt and Levitsky "How Democracies Die" thesis and the uh, Norm Ornstein, Thomas Mann, and E.J. Dion uh, thesis. So they're coming at this, and I think this leads to what you're talking, what you wanted, what you asked about. Um, so the former, the, the "How Democracies Die" guys are, are operating from from a bit of a different emphasis, right? These guys are scholars of, of democratic backsliding and autocracy around the world. And so what they're doing is they're looking at um, the current uh, Trump administration or the current Trump degradations through that prism and asking, is there overlap? And are we seeing some of the similar signs that, you know, here that we've seen elsewhere? And and they conclude, yes, we're seeing some of those signs. And, and what they come up with is what I what I labeled. The um, the unexceptional well the the unexceptionalism uh, thesis, which is that you know democracy could die here. We're not special, um, and so I think they're. It's hard to say how pessimistic they are. They, they they're not quite as pessimistic as I think some readers took away from them. Um, but anyway, the difference between them and, and uh, E.J. Dion and um, Thomas Mann and Norm Ornstein is that the, the latter are more looking at ways that we can use policy in the United States to to shore up democracy against some of these degradations. And, and 
and they offer a progressive economic agenda, I think, in a way that maybe the other guys don't. And and the reason I think they, they come out as a little bit more optimistic is because they conclude that, you know, civil society has been activated by a lot of this stuff and and uh, that we're seeing and and this leads me to to what you asked about which is that it's almost it's so hard to say what the long-term impact of Trump's degradations will be precisely because the the backlash to it has been so powerful i mean if you look at the last election for instance the turnout was astronomically high for a midterm and i think it's impossible to read that as anything other than a reaction to Trump's Attacks on democracy. I think, um, you know, the American electorate, mostly on the Democratic side, I think, driven by this, um, really was motivated by a very deep sense that something is very wrong and that participation was the answer to it. And so, you know, you have to look at that and say, well, okay, um, maybe, maybe he's activated such a powerful backlash that that. That the, the long term impact isn't going to be too severe. Well, that would be the ideal outcome, of course. And, you know, as you mentioned about how uh, E.J. Dion, Norm Ornstein, and Thomas Mann uh, put a lot of weight on policy's ability to, uh, for want of a better term, rescue us from this crisis, I'm imagining that they're collectively buoyed by the Democrats taking the House. Uh, so I, just before we move on, I, I will just ask you, I think the presidency will recover post-Trump. But do you fear that Trump has done some permanent damage to our political norms, particularly in what you call uh, the Thunderdome politics approach that, that Trump uh, employs to, to, to his politics? Well, so I think probably the most likely outcome, and I just want to stress that this is really speculative. Of course. And so I reserve the right to be wrong about that. <laughs> no, um, understood. So, <laughs> so, you know, I think the main danger here is that Trump has essentially really um, uh, set a terrible precedent for Republican politicians, right? Um, And and I'm not saying that I think this is necessarily going to be the case, but one possibility is that, you know, Republicans who are going to be running in the future kind of conclude that, you know, well, I don't have to do the stuff that candidates used to do. Trump showed that Republican voters don't give a crap about whether I release my tax returns or whether I demonize Muslims and, you know, um, and just lie endlessly. And I mean, you actually saw some symptoms of this, interestingly, in, in this in this in this past uh, midterm, particularly during the Republican primaries. Um, you actually had some Republican candidates who went out and attacked the Robert Mueller investigation fairly vigorously in order to win over Republican primary voters. Uh, you had a level of, I think, demonizing of immigrants and uh, and 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 um, asylum seekers from Republican candidates that I don't think you would have seen in the pre-Trump era. Um, this is not to romanticize the Republican Party. Uh, uh, pre-Trump, but rather to say that Trump essentially stripped away kind of this veneer of quote-unquote, you know, respectability that that uh, or respectable standards that some of these candidates felt they had to hew to. And so I'd, I'm curious to know over time whether, um, you know, 
imagine a world in which, and I'm not predicting this, but imagine a world in which Trump is is decisively defeated in 2020. Um, you could kind of see um, another rethink after that along the lines of the autopsy that Republicans did after um, losing in 2012. And so maybe a lot of Republicans would conclude that this type of politics kind of had its moment in the past. But on the other hand, if Trump wins re-election, and I don't know what Republican politics is going to look like in 2022 and 2024. Well, I think a lot of people were hoping that the Republican Party was going to have that sort of autopsy after 2016. And then again in 2018, I think a lot of people were hoping that the results would be so definitively against Trump that it would be a repudiation of Trumpism. But that really wasn't the case. And while Democrats did manage managed to make historic gains um, in the House and uh, I believe got the largest share of Democratic votes in any midterm ever in history, it still wasn't enough to essentially inform uh, Republican candidates moving forward that this is really not something that the American public wants or is going to tolerate. Uh, and that, that, is, right. that is frightening. Yeah, I would say a couple things about that. You know, one is that it was never really in the cards to get the kind of overwhelming victory that might have produced, you know, that type of recognition for a bunch of reasons, right? The Senate map was so horrifically stacked. Well, sure, on the Senate side, yeah, absolutely. And then even on the House side, right, like, you know, 40 seats is a pretty extraordinary gain. It just just ticked up to 40 just a few minutes ago. Yeah. T.J. Cox Um, uh, in uh, in Fresno in California. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so they, I mean, they won the largest popular vote victory, I believe, ever in any midterm nationally. I think NBC did some calculations along those lines. So... You know, if that doesn't do it, I don't. I really don't know what would. Um, well, Trump but, being removed from office uh, would uh, <laughs> that would certainly be well, helpful. Yeah. Either either through, you know in, in the middle of his term or the at the end of his term in twenty twenty, perhaps. Right, I think that might be what it would take, like some sort of decisive victory over Trump himself. Um, you know, I'm not sure what happens if it's extremely close, right? And the other thing that we have to sort of consider is no matter what happens in 2020, it's possible that a block of voters has been created in the Republican Party that's just fundamentally willing to embrace authoritarian and and racist politics in in a way that that maybe wasn't as overt before. And I don't know what happens then um, to the Republican Party, honestly. so Well, there's been a block of people and voters and politicians that have been uh, legitimized through this process, and uh, a lot of their uglier and and more base tendencies have have really come to the fore, and it's I think it's going to be a long slog to try to basically get them to crawl back into their caves, as it were. Uh, but I do want to yeah. shift over and talk about some of the the, the positive arguments that you make. Um, and you know, we talked about renewed civic engagement. Uh, you talked about how the courts have held up, and I would also note that your profession, the media, has has held up pretty well. And that, uh, considering that it's been under constant attack, um, you know, Trump intimidates the media at his rallies. As you mentioned, he's labeled the press the enemy of the people, and uh, most horrifically, uh, he looked the other way recently uh, as another colleague of yours at the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, was brutally murdered. Uh, and yet, the U.S. media has managed to hold pretty. 
strong. And I'm wondering what you attribute that to. Is is it the decentralized nature of the U.S. press? Are there uh, there there are other factors? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a little hard to say why exactly the the, the press is held, but I, I do I do want to stress that it it really I mean it's the the media is really fundamentally really a, a robust in, independent institution, and I think that's what we're seeing now. It's highly professionalized, which is something I write about in the book, um, and it's gone through major transitions before and. Um, I think those are the main reasons why it's holding up. It's the professionalization of the media, which is something that's very, you know, really, really picked up steam in the late 20th century after, after the abuses of Watergate really kind of uh, forced the, the, the and and and, and uh, the official deception around Vietnam and and other changes to the federal government. The growth of the federal government kind of uh, escalated the professionalization of, of the press. Um, I do think we have to be absolutely heartened by what we've seen. The press has in many ways performed really magnificently in this era um, of the era of Trump. It's, it's, it's pushed back very, very hard on Trump's efforts to intimidate and cow it. Uh, there are many signs that leading players in the, in the industry are thinking very seriously about the kind of, um, unprecedented nature of the attacks on it that we're seeing from Trump, both in the in the enemy of the people rhetoric, but also in the constant disinformation and lying. You see lots of uh, leading players openly discussing their their profession's role in um, in helping Trump spread um, disinformation and openly discussing ways that they need to avoid doing that. You see them talking publicly about in ways that reaffirm the liberal core liberal democratic values of the news media and its its role in our democracy there are certainly problems i think and i i run through a bunch of them in the book but overall i think we have to be heartened by by what we've seen yeah. Well, I mean, even just yesterday and Tuesday, uh, MSNBC chose not to run the Sarah Sanders press briefing. I believe that's the first time that they've opted not to do that. And then CNN did run it, uh, but with a box that did real-time fact-checking. What are your thoughts on, on both of those developments? So I really, really like that stuff. I, I mean, I feel, I feel like, and we've seen a lot of it. To me, and I write about this in the book at some length, what we've seen is a lot of innovation, right? Um, and that's really, I think, crucial. People have It took a little while for people to come to terms with the fact that Trump was essentially trying to erode and destroy the, the press's institutional role in some very fundamental way. I don't know if he conceives of that as a conscious thing or not. I don't either. Um, and that, that actually is a very interesting question in and of itself yeah, because it almost seems it instinctual with him, right? It really does. It, it, you know, it seems like it's sort of half born out of his, you know, personality and half out of his, uh, I'm going to get my uh, fractions wrong here, but um, partly out of his um, uh, reality TV background mm-hmm. and, and, you know, past working the, the tabloids and so forth. Which, and, and his understanding, I think his really, and frankly, we got to give him credit for this in, in a perverse way. He, this is a guy who really knows how to fill the space with a story, and, and he understands that the story is what matters, right? And so the facts just sort of fall by the wayside, right? And we're sort of helplessly like spitballing like him with fact-checking, and he understands better than we do that the story is what's key. 
And so, right. So just to back to what we were saying, um, he, uh, you know, he, he, he really has been essentially trying to destroy the, the role of the press and innovation in response has been the key. And you've seen it in all different kinds of ways. You've seen it in the, so the, the Washington Post fact checker has done an fact-checking team led by Glenn Kessler has done a kind of extraordinary database that I encourage people to look at. You can really just look up lies so easily and, and track the different types of lying. It's like, it's almost like a, a scientific project like that you could see something like NASA doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, you have this great quote uh, in the book about Trump's lying. You say, quote, there's a reason Trump regularly tells lies that are easy to debunk. The whole point is to assert the power to say what the truth is, even when or especially when easily verifiable facts, ones that are right in front of our noses, dictate the contrary. And, you know, this makes me curious about the post guidelines for covering Trump's lies. But but also, how do we balance the need to call out Trump's repeated lies with the legitimacy that repeating them gives those lies? I mean, not to paraphrase uh, Return of the Jedi, but uh, is this a trap. Well, so, you know, there is a lot of theorizing about that. You see plenty of it on Twitter. I I almost feel like we overthink things if we worry too much about that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, you know, there there are theories out there that say that you need to lead with the truth and then uh, explain, then then recount the lie and then close on the truth again. And I'm I'm open to all that. To me, what matters is that we're just clear on a very specific point, and and it's this one, right? We need to be clear with readers that Trump is trying to destroy objective truth, right? That he's trying to destroy the role of the press, the the, the legitimate institutional role of the press in our democracy. If we essentially cover each lie and each you know public statement and attack with an understanding that we need to convey that basic larger truth, I think we'll be okay. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to debate the specifics of, of framing and so forth. But to me, when we get into the, you know, the big argument that had unfolded last year over whether to call a lie a lie, I felt like the, the important point there was that if we don't call a lie a lie, it's not just that we're getting it wrong in a particular case. Like it's not just that we're failing to label a particular statement properly. It's more that we're not telling the larger story, right? Which is that there's a concerted and deliberate campaign underway by Trump and his allies to essentially uh, obliterate uh, shared facts as a as a possibility, um, you know, uh, as a the foundation for discourse. Yeah, which uh, gets us into some frightening territory there. Um, you know, I'd like to close interviews on the show on a positive note whenever possible. And so, uh, you know, you end your book by talking a great deal about how to fix some of the problems that you outline. You quote David Ferris, who's who's been a guest on this show. Um, he makes the case for Democrats needing to get tougher, uh, in his words, to fight dirty. He says, among other things, that the next time Democrats have the White House and the Congress, they need to expand the number of Supreme Court justices. They need to grant statehood to Puerto Rico and D.C. to eliminate the filibuster, among other things. And I'm wondering, to what extent do you feel like Democrats do need to employ these tough tactics to level the playing field without, say, going too far and possibly creating a backlash? Well, let me just say that I think what what, uh, David and and many others who are making similar cases are doing is really important. I think they're staking out or, you know, they're forcing attention to 
the Republican destruction of norms, and 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 they're also fo- focusing attention on on the failure of many institutional Democrats and some in the media to recognize what today's Republican Party has become. And I think that's the fundamental point that they're really getting at. We that that we in the media and the Democrats who, when they take power, have to operate from a real understanding of what what how the Republican Party operates. Right. Yep. Um, I, I don't quite come down uh, in the same place as he and, and others in his camp do. I, I don't really object seriously to, to what they say. I think it's an important part of the conversation. I was a little bit more and, – and by the way, you know, if, if one is a full-fledged Democratic partisan, I'm not saying that, that uh, any of these folks are, but if one is, one can kind of a little bit more easily justify – going full constitutional hardball to, to win. Um, what I'm trying to argue this from a bit of a more institutionalist perspective. And so the what I suggest is a kind of equilibrium for Democrats to try and set up as an ideal if they take power. And, and the equilibrium is basically that they don't, unilater- don't unilaterally disarm, which means be willing to escalate where it's necessary. Um, but at the same time, try to strive towards an ideal of fair play where possible by, you know, opportunistically removing uh, from the table um, areas that uh, where where the political rules are subject to manipulation so that neither side can do it. So I argue for various compromises around voting access that could you know, if adopted, essentially de-escalate the war, the voting wars. And I argue for nonpartisan uh, uh, redistricting commissions so that that, that sort of, uh, so, you know, extreme partisan gerrymanders are, are taken off the table. And that's kind of the equilibrium I go for. And I, I admit in the book that it's a difficult challenge to figure out how to get that balance right. Yeah. But I do think we can over time, and I, I think we should strive for it. Well, it's all – I think you know what you discuss in the book uh, is very sensible, particularly in light of the fact that I think one could say that we have one – functioning party in this country and one extremist faction that uh, seems only concerned with consolidating and keeping power and so creating equilibrium right. is, that's, that's, is is important exactly we don't want to we don't want to essentially just we don't want to follow the the right over the cliff into procedural nihilism you know liberals i think and progressives and and large d and small d democrats need to stand for the idea that 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 fair play is an attainable or is, is an ideal worth striving for in politics. I think we need to sort of try and get to a point where there's at least some consensus on what that might look like, as difficult as that seems. I will say that I did a podcast with conservative Matt Lewis, um, who you, I'm sure I'm sure you know your readers know him, and we were able to actually agree on a bunch of things, which was really quite gratifying. Mm. And so, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to give up on the idea that, that – and, you know, by the way, you see Republicans supporting some of these things in some places. You're seeing more and more Republicans condemn voter suppression. You're seeing, you know, in some places Republicans are supporting things like automatic voter registration. I think you could see them coming around to some of those solutions. I'm not going to – I'm really not trying to be um, – you know, Pollyannish about what today's Republican <laughs> Party is, but I, I just feel like my, my basic point here is that I don't. I think we need to sort of at least tell ourselves that you know um, 
good politics is something to strive for. Well, that's far more optimistic a take than, honestly, I would have expected from you. Um, and so I, I will just uh, I will risk asking one final question that I really did want to ask you. Uh, you talked in the plumb line on Wednesday about the ability for the Democratic House to rein in Trump on issues like immigration, specifically what has been happening with the border crisis and, and also with the climate and the recent climate report. Are you optimistic that the Democratic House can make any headway there? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they can actually do a lot. Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of it is going to be there's going to be a lot of uh, serious trench warfare with the administration over uh, subpoenas and so forth, and there will be a lot of battling on, among Democrats too about how far to go. There will be some Democrats who are urging too much caution. There there will be some Democrats who will be urging maybe uh, a much more aggressive approach, but. But I think, generally speaking, while a lot of this remains to be seen, you know, I think you could see a, a effective Democratic oversight really shining light on on some of the governing abuses we've seen. I, I really, one thing I want to stress is that while it's totally understandable for people to want the uh, Democratic oversight regime to to focus on the the hot button stuff like Russia and Trump's finances and his tax returns, that stuff's all important. But governing is also important, and and good democratic oversight can shine light on Trump's many governing abuses, particularly in areas like immigration and and climate change. And hopefully, what I'm hopeful for is that in some basic way, the Democratic House can start to reverse the kind of nonstop bad faith and misinformation or disinformation that's coming out of the administration, or at least mitigate it by – just bringing some truth to some of these debates and, yeah. and at least shining a light on the fact that a lot of the administration's policies are based on, on you know, lies and, and bad faith rationales and so forth. So I'm hopeful. I, I think it's going to be a tough slog for sure. And there will be a lot of battling around this stuff. But I think that if, if Democrats proceed effectively and judiciously and stick to the facts and and stick to shining light on governing abuses and corruption, then I think they could make they could actually make a real difference. The book is An Uncivil War out on Custom House, and his blog is The Plumb Line at WashingtonPost.com. Greg Sargent, thank you so much for a great discussion. Thank you very much. So as everyone who has been following the heartbreaking developments that are happening at the U.S. border in San Ysidro with the asylum seeker knows, the situation there is dire and people are looking for ways to help and to make their voices heard. The organization Families Belong Together is calling for nationwide rallies called Stop the Tears on Sunday, December 2nd. And we are now joined by the lead organizer of the Seattle rally, Palmira Figueroa. Palmira, thank you so much for being here. Sure, thank you. So I know that you've been involved with Families Belong Together since its inception, and you coordinate the Seattle Coalition of some 40 organizations. Uh, You also organized the rally at the SeaTac Detention Center. Uh, Sunday's rally is happening at pretty late notice, and it's it's a really big job, as I'm sure you're aware. What moved you to want to organize the Stop the Tears rally in Seattle? 
Well, uh, the main thing that moves me to organize uh, any kind of uh, rally like this is um, especially the suffering of people. And in this case, um, I am also an immigrant. I am originally from Mexico City and been living in this country for 16 years. So um, that and also that I read an article and um, among many things that I've read, but I read an article in The Guardian that is called This is How uh, the Invasion Trump's invasion or caravan invasion really looks like. Hmm. And it's um, it's an, more like a documentary uh, on following a couple of families along the way in the caravan. And it really paints the human face that we sometimes don't get to see, uh, even though I've been seeing that face for a long time because I've been working with immigrants for um, the whole time I've been living in the States. Uh, but the dire face of people fleeing, fleeing their countries um, is painted on that article. And so um, I read it. I saw the national call to do something on the weekend, and I just decided that it is important to do something about it, to bring more information to people. Yeah, the article that you uh, mentioned is, in, as you said, it's in The Guardian, and it's by uh, Brian Mueller. I will be providing yeah. a link to that at indivisiblepodcast.org for people to read. But, I, you know, I'm wondering, since you mentioned that you're an immigrant, uh, I, yeah. I'm wondering what your emotional response has been as you've been watching what's been happening to migrant families at the border. Yeah, um, well, first of all, I am not surprised I would like to say that, and this is not new, although because of the number of people coming uh, and walking for 2,000 miles to get to the border, it feels a little bigger, although this is a phenomenon that, as we all know, has been happening for a long time, and it's always been in directions, and people in the border have always died and have been separated. It's just that with this administration, things are less humane, more dire and more difficult for everyone. And so um, going back to your question, I think that what's happening just um, I, I don't know, I think I told you before, I feel like we're losing the soul of humanity here. If we don't care about a government deciding to do tear gas on, on families that are just standing on a border asking for refuge, yeah. um, then what do we care about? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a defining moment uh, for us as a country and for this administration in particular that we would be doing mm -hmm. that to people mm -hmm. who are fleeing such horrific conditions where they're coming from to have to face that sort of thing when they get here is just... Uh, it's beyond the pale. Um, so I, I know that the event is still coming together. It's a work in progress. But as of right mm -hmm. now, what is the lineup for the Stop the Tears event? Yeah, um, we have a very defined mission. I think uh, we are still talking to people to be speakers. We really want to have speakers that have experience, uh, refugee and immigration um, in their own skin. We want the people that have the stories to tell us the stories so we can learn. So it's an idea. the idea is for people to come because they care, because this shouldn't be happening but to leave from there with actions, with ideas on how to help, how to get more engaged, and how to stop it. What are some of those actions, if you can just say off the top of your head, that you would like people to come away from this event with? 
Sure. Uh, we are going to have a comprehensive list of organizations that are supporting the uh, both the caravan and the people that are already in the border um, uh, asking for asylum. Uh, we are also going to um, talk about the government and what ways we have to pressure the government, either writing, calling, talking, what are the talking points, uh, what should we say, and why do we care. Um, and also we probably will do either a drive or an asking for donations or both, uh, but since that hasn't been completely decided, it's just in the air, um, but it's a possibility. Great. Well, I, as I said in the intro, people really do want to get involved and help. So I think that it's wonderful. I love your mission that people come because they care and they, they leave with actions. Um, I know that this is still being ironed out in terms of where this is going to take place. Um, yeah. So you're waiting on confirmation. Just got confirmation. I just got confirmation. You did. OK, so tell uh, us then. Yeah. Okay, that's that's yeah. terrific. So yeah. then tell us what time are people meeting and where? 11 a.m. at Occidental Park in Pioneer Square. All right. That's terrific. Well, uh, mm -hmm. Palmira Figueroa, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for putting this this very, very necessary rally together. Thank you for your work. Yeah, of course. And it's, I just should say that it's not just me. It's a group of people, a lot of indivisible um, people, too. So it's not just me. It's a lot of us. But, um, but I am coordinating um, the effort this time. Excellent. Well, yeah, it always <laughs> it always takes a team with these sorts of things. But yes. thank you for leading the charge. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. And finally this week, we are joined once again by our friend Stephen Wilhelm, research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th, to talk about some calls to action. Stephen, welcome back. How you been, man? Doing good. Uh, happy post-Thanksgiving, post-Cyber Monday, post-whatever we're in right now. <laughs> exactly. It's post-pretty much everything, post-Giving Tuesday. Hey, uh, I don't know if you caught wind of it since we last spoke, but uh, the Democrats took the House. Uh, you know what? I, I might have read something about that. <laughs> Well, yeah, these are good days ahead, I think, or, or at the very least, better days ahead. Yeah. And that's thanks to the work of Indivisible and a number of progressive activist groups. So let's jump into uh, some new calls to action for this week. As everybody knows, we are in the lame duck session of Congress now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, and what we can maybe make happen or prevent from happening uh, over these next few weeks. Uh, so these first three calls to action are imminent in terms of when they're going to be voted on, which could be any moment now. And I'll just make a note that we are recording at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, the 28th. So the first is on Saudi Arabia. The Senate is set to vote on revoking U.S. support for Saudi Arabia in Yemen and also in light of the Crown Prince's alleged role in the murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Stephen, give us some background here. You bet. I'm sure everybody has uh, heard um, uh, that the Washington Post correspondent Jamal Khashoggi, who, who is a U.S. person, he has a green card, um, was alleged to have been murdered by uh, Saudi Arabians under the um, direction of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, the Trump administration has done virtually well, has done very little to hold them accountable. There have been some sanctions that have been imposed on um, some of the senior leadership in uh, Saudi Arabia, but nothing at all uh, has been um, 
taken, no action taken against Mohammed bin Salman. And, and again, um, MBS, as, as uh, people refer to him, yeah. has demonstrated some really poor judgment, to say the least. Uh, certainly the murder would not be the least of it. You know, one of the worst things that the Saudi Arabians have done with support from the United States and um, other countries is to engage in a war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And, and so we are supporting them with, with U.S. weapons and intelligence. Um, uh, last numbers I read were something like on the order of 85,000 or something like that people killed and potential famine affecting up to 13 or 14 million people. And so, yeah, it's a huge well, humanitarian crisis it, going it's on there. Probably the biggest humanitarian crisis on the globe right now. And it's it's being done uh, totally at the behest of the administration with no authorization from Congress. So the action would be to request our members of Congress, both senators and uh, representatives, to support uh, resolutions that are before the House and the Senate um, to withdraw authorization from the administration to be able to, to support these, these this uh, devastating war. In fact, as you mentioned, the Senate vote could occur sometime this week. Um, the House vote uh, hasn't been scheduled yet. Um, but we would certainly want to call both our rep- uh, representative and our senators and urge them to um, support, vote for the the resolutions that uh, you'll have the numbers for in the show notes. Yeah, correct. I'll have that at indivisiblepodcast.org. And and I think people can understand the urgency here, particularly in Yemen, where the situation is just so dire. So let's move on and talk about the Senate confirmation votes coming up on a couple of judicial nominees. The first is Thomas Farr, who is up for the federal district court. He is a particularly odious nominee. Uh, Tell us about him. You bet. He's he's such a fine nominee that he's been nominated four times by two different presidents and so far hasn't gotten um, a confirmation vote. So, gee, I wonder what's wrong with him. Okay, let me tell you. Uh, You know, fundamentally, he he has opposed um, or he has supported, I guess I should say, um, unconstitutional racial gerrymandering and illegal voter ID laws that – um, the court that struck them down said targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision, um, and this is in North Carolina, a state that's really um, labored under um, uh, you know Jim Crow and and, and discrimination type of, of laws. Um, and if that isn't you know bad enough, he's also made it difficult for workers facing discrimination in the workplace to. Um, bring suits uh, against those discriminations. So he, he is just a, um, in my words, just a terrible uh, judicial nominee. He's been voted against several times, even not to go too far back in the weeds. He, he uh, um, uh, campaigned, or he was a, a campaign um, leader for uh, Strom Thurmond, and there were postcards that were sent out to um, African-American voters that um, tried to suppress, tried to discourage them from voting. So his his um, record goes way back, and he's just somebody that shouldn't be anywhere near um, a, a judicial nomination. He, the cloture vote, should be coming up in the in the Senate, as you say, this week, and then there should be a long knockdown, dragout fight in terms of the Senate. Um, obstructing virtually everything they can do, withholding unanimous consent, forcing um, you know 30 hours of debate, doing everything they can do to um, withhold support from him. It, it looks like um, Jeff Flake may not vote for him be- 
because of some things he's trying to do to support uh, protecting Robert Mueller. Um, but that would still give the Republicans 50 votes. We would need to get at least one more Republican to to vote against him to to be able to oppose him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I should mention that uh, Senator Patty Murray tweeted on Tuesday night, quote, we recently saw how critical it is to stop voter suppression and make sure every eligible voter can make their voice uh, voice heard. Thomas Farr's record makes it clear he would move us in the opposite direction if confirmed to the bench. So in this case, we are asking listeners to contact Senator Maria Cantwell to oppose Thomas Farr. So the second nominee is named Jonathan Cobes. He is up for the federal circuit court. He has a number of negatives. Uh, talk about Cobes. Uh, you, you bet. Fundamentally, he would be um, worthy of opposition just by virtue of the fact that he has very little um, legal experience, or, or I should say courtroom experience. Um, he has um, served as lead counsel in just two trials that led to a verdict. Um, it appears that he's had just one appellate appellate, sorry, um, oral argument, has argued no, no cases before the Supreme Court, no legal scholarship, no law review articles, not made any public pronouncement, and his only substantive public statement was in a Dutch paper. It was related to politics and in support of Donald Trump. <laughs> so even if he was a Democrat um, or, or you know, um, supported by Democrats, it would be really appropriate for folks to say, gee, this guy has got no judicial experience or no legal experience that would make him a good judge. But on top of that, he's taken a number of positions that, that are just really odious to, to progressive voters. So, you know, he's supported a law that would have forced physicians to read a specific script to women seeking abortions and to give them contact information for anti-abortion uh, help centers. He belongs to the NRA, and he opposes common-sense uh, gun safety legislation. So... He's just really experienced. He's probably not quite as awful as Thomas Farr. Um, but that was the a name I was going to bring up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he is again. The action would be uh, call both of your senators, call Patty Murray, call Maria Cantwell, and ask them to throw the kitchen sink at both of these nominations. Do everything they can to oppose them withhold unanimous consent, vote against them, insist on 30 hours of debate. The more we jam up the Senate, especially at this busy time of year, the better off, uh, the better our odds are of being able to um, roadblock at least one of these terrible nominees. Yeah, I mean, we know that there's been a, a concerted effort between Trump and the GOP Senate to pack the court with ideologues, and we've seen a fair number of unqualified ideologues, and it sounds like Cobes belongs with them. Uh, you know, so I will mention that we also, uh, particularly in light of Trump firing Jeff Sessions after the election and appointing loyalist Matthew Whitaker as AG, uh, we want to do what we can in this lame duck session to try to protect the Mueller investigation. So uh, talk about the action here. Sure. So what we want to do there, and and fortunately we've got uh, some help from some Republicans, believe it or not. What we want to do here, there there is legislation uh, before both the House and the Senate, and as you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, the um, uh, Senate uh, legislation is, is going to be voted on this week. But Jeff Flake has taken a position that he will not support any judicial nominees either in the Judiciary Committee that he sits on or on the Senate floor until the Senate votes on a, um, on a bill. Uh, S-2644, that would protect the special counsel from um, 
being fired except for good cause and for having an, an opportunity to appeal um, that firing if it were to occur. So what we definitely would like our senators to do is to come out publicly to support that legislation, to support uh, Senator Flake in his opposition, and to insist that that legislation uh, get a vote on the, the Senate floor and, and even to con uh, co-sponsor. Um, 2644. There is, in fact, a bill in front of the House as well that we should ask our representatives to do the same thing. They should make a statement. Uh, they should come out in support of uh, uh, H.R. 5476, and they should um, insist on a floor vote in front of the House. Now, frankly, the odds of that are low, but it's sure. still a worthy action. And, and where the where the rubber will hit the road uh, this week is is in the Senate, where we really want to insist on um, getting a vote on the floor. And if it if it go down if it goes down in defeat uh, as a standalone bill. Uh, as it as it may well do this week, uh, we can also ask our senators to insist that 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 bill be included as an amendment to must pass resolution. Um, your listeners may recall that uh, the continuing resolution for about seven appropriation bills is running out on the seventh of December, and so it would certainly be appropriate for Senator Flake or another senator to offer. Um, that 2644 is amendment to uh, either a continuing resolution or or an appropriation bill that has to pass um, next week. We need to do everything we can to get that bill voted on um, by the Senate and then eventually the House. Yeah, you know, there may be some fireworks around the continuing resolution, and uh, we may see a potential tug-of-war uh, over funding for Trump's wall. So we will check back in with you about actions that we may have on that next week. But Stephen Wilhelm, thanks as always. My pleasure, Stefan. So I will mention one last uh, call to action before we go. We've talked a great deal on this show about the prospect of Washington being the first state to achieve universal health care. And the organization Healthcare for All Washington will have two upcoming events where people can learn about their 2019 legislative plan, including the Bridge to Single Payer bill that Representative Nicole Macri will be sponsoring in the House. And people can also write cards to their current or incoming legislators asking for support. Both events are going to be on Saturday, December 1st, one in West Seattle at the Southwest Branch of the Seattle Public Library from 2 to 3.30 p.m., and that is at 910 35th Avenue Southwest in Seattle. The second will be in Everett from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Everett Public Library, that is 2702 Hoyt Avenue in Everett. And if you miss those addresses, don't worry, they're going to be on indivisiblepodcast.org in the show notes. Organizers are asking people to RSVP on their website at healthcareforallwa.org or also on their Facebook page. You can do it there. And if you can't make either of these uh, dates, additional sessions are going to be scheduled in early January at other locations around the state. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there too, and please do. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Special thanks to Kimberly Davis, Maureen Cole, and Kat Martin. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.